0: Hey there folks, Oliver here. I have an interview this week with Taco Kalia of Van Malf or Van Moof as I like to call it. They make incredibly beautiful Dutch designed e-bikes. They are some of the smartest and most focused in the hardware space on the e-bike form factor that I've come across. Taco actually spoke at the recent MicroMobility Berlin conference and it was great to go and follow up with him just to be able to kind of unpack what he talked about on stage. There's a video link to his presentation which is in the show notes. Go and check that out as well if you want to learn a little bit more. But before we get into that, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Twilio. Shared micromobility, as we know, is a deceptively hard business. You keep losing your connection to those vehicles, and soon you will not be in business. And that's where Twilio comes in. It's a global IoT connectivity platform that helps companies like Lime, Skip, Spin, and Beam to keep their vehicles connected and cost-effectively help them scale faster, deploy further, and optimize their supply chain. Twilio is also a global leader in SMS and phone number verifications using an API to help reduce fraud and improve compliance. So are you an operator and are you looking for the right global connectivity partner to deal with? Well, Twilio is offering free SIMs and test credit to MicroMobility podcast listeners. Check the link in the podcast description for more. And with that, here is Taco. And welcome back to MicroMobility. I have with us today, Taco. How are you today, Taco?
1: Yeah, awesome. I just had a a great bike ride from my home to my office along the canals of Amsterdam. A lot of bikes on the streets, so um, feeling great. Yeah, good, good.
0: I had quite a joyous experience coming in and checking out your offices when I was passing through Amsterdam a couple of months ago. And uh, it was... For someone who's never been to Amsterdam, like I, I was blown away by how how special Amsterdam is when you realize like what a city can actually function like if you've got, you know, proper infrastructure for people to go and ride uh, e-bikes, what's the mode share of bikes uh, in terms of like the amount of travel that goes on in, in, uh, in the Netherlands?
1: Yeah, I think the in Amsterdam, almost 50% of all commutes is on a bike. So the other 50% is divided by cars, public transport, pedestrians. When you move around in Amsterdam, there are just bikes everywhere. We even have bicycle traffic jams. There are no hardly any uh, e-scooters in in Amsterdam. It's it's uh, completely different. Let's say as Berlin, where you see a lot of e-scooters at the moment. Uh, Paris too. It's just bikes and bikes only. Cars are more and more yeah disappearing almost automatically. People just don't. The bike is so much faster in Amsterdam. It's more fun and healthy. So hardly anybody. Uh, even considers to own a car or to ride a car through uh, to Amsterdam
0: yeah well I think you're the first Dutch guest that we've had we we oftentimes talk about the Netherlands when we're on this show just because you guys have been uh the center of the biking world for or, or sort of a model of the biking world for for a long time but I would love to know the story how did you even get started with doing uh bikes I mean how did you end up founding Van Malfe?
1: yeah the the cool thing is that um, you have to travel to another city in order to see what's good about your uh, what your own city so uh, i was uh, I was living in amsterdam um, had a company uh, together with my with my brother and we were on a business trip in new york and uh, being dutch we we, we rented a, a bicycle to explore the the city and we were riding around and and realized how great it is to ride a bike in, in New York. And New York has the most beautiful bike lane of the, of the world. It's uh, the bike lane over uh, Brooklyn Bridge. Not during the day anymore. It's, it's too crowded, but during the night, it's awesome. Yeah, we started, uh, I'm an industrial and uh, design engineer by trade. So we started thinking how, why is it that more, not more people are, are cycling here in New York? And why is it that in Amsterdam, everybody is cycling. And what can we do as industrial designers to, to change that, to get more people on bikes in cities like, like New York? And that's the start of the thinking process with, which led to the creation of move four years later. So we, me and my brother decided to spend At least a period of our life, maybe our entire life, to combining the traditional Dutch knowledge of urban commuting on bikes with modern technology in order to overcome the barriers that that people encounter when they uh, want to start riding bikes. And then the, the, the mission was created to get as much people on bikes in San Francisco, New York, Paris, London, Berlin and Tokyo as we have in our hometown of uh, of Amsterdam.
0: I love it because you I mean as you came and presented in Berlin Taco did a pitch culture presentation talking about the the history of Van Moof and what they do and it was excellent but the slide that really stuck for me was you want to get the next billion on bikes.
1: Yeah, you have to be uh, ambition. To be honest, I think that's really going to, to happen. We will. We were right at the beginning of a revolution. Because I tell you why. Amsterdam has the perfect conditions for cycling. It's, it's a pretty small city, one million people, but pretty dense. It's flat and the weather is kind of good. So Amsterdam shows, and Copenhagen too, and, and a lot of c- cities in Western Europe. If the conditions are right, people will switch to, to cycling automatically because it's just the most healthy, most fun, fastest, affordable way to move around town in a modern city. So if the conditions are right, people will switch. E-bikes change the conditions. They bring the good conditions of Amsterdam to the rest of the world. They flatten hills, they make it possible for people without the best shape to commute to their work. It makes it
0: possible for fat people.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't, that's, that's not necessary. Yeah. I think, like, if you look at London, you see a lot of really young people in, in spandex on, on road bikes commuting to their work. But that doesn't bring the masses to bikes. And I think e-bikes will. And that's the beginning of a big uh, change. And, and e-bikes will bring uh, the masses in, in cities like San Francisco, New York, Paris, London and Tokyo on, uh, on bikes. And we're just at the beginning of that revolution. We can see it in our in our numbers. We can see it in sales picking up. We see it on the streets. It's starting, and it's gonna ch- completely change the way we move in the biggest cities of the uh, on this earth.
0: Cool. Um, but talk me through your business operations. So you've got you guys have obviously got all your design and your sales and your operations and everything in Amsterdam. Where do you manufacture? And how big is it, you know, where have you got company stores and all that sort of stuff?
1: First of all, so I started the company 10 years ago with my brother. My brother moved to Taipei eight years ago. So he's living in uh, in Taipei. So we have an R&D engineering office in Taipei with approximately 35 people. And then we have a slightly bigger office in, in Amsterdam with approximately hundred people. So we do the the design and the uh, marketing sales. That's all Amsterdam, operations, finance, but the real engineering of the electronics and hardware, everything, the design engineering, we call it, that's in Taipei. So then we have our own stores. We only sell direct to our consumers. So we sell them via our own brand stores and online. So we have our own brand stores now in San Francisco, New York, Paris, London, Berlin, Amsterdam, Tokyo, and a small one in Taipei. So that's where we uh, sell the bikes and where we get into contact with our customers. So that's basically it. Production is divided a little bit between Europe and uh, Taipei. Most European bikes are produced in the Netherlands. The bikes for the Japanese and American market are produced in Taiwan. But that's just the assembly. The key is what we did in the past 10 years is not only redesign uh, the bike, we redesigned the way bikes are produced. So we are controlling the entire process of the design and engineering of the parts. So Almost 80% of the parts now are designed uh, and created by ourselves as a company. I think I'll come back to that later. So that's where the real uh, yeah, the work is. And those parts are produced in factories all over the world. And then it's... Yeah, the final part is just the assembly and actually it doesn't matter too much where you uh, you assemble. That's more a financial decision. It has to do with uh,
0: import duties, taxes, shipping. Yeah, that's not the hardest part. And so you're selling into how many markets at the moment?
1: Yeah, officially we have brand stores in, in seven countries and we're selling a little bit more in, in, in nine, uh, 19 or 20 countries. So we have some countries in in, in Europe where we do sell online, where we don't have a brand store yet.
0: Yes. And then in terms of volumes of sales, so what was the number of bikes that you sold last year and revenue in terms of turnover? Yeah, it's
1: growing very fast. So this year uh, we sold approximately, uh, I think, 20,000 bikes, just below uh, 20,000. We've been doubling in revenue for five years in a row now. It's growing very
0: fast. Yeah. Yeah, because I I had a chance when I when I think I talked to your uh, CMO, Dave, who's a he's a Kiwi. Yeah, got connected to him. And and he said, you know, when I when I talked to him originally, he said, oh, yeah, look, uh, we're about to do a fundraise. He sent me through the the docs and I was kind of blown away with the projections that you guys have about where you where you're thinking of getting to by 2025. I mean, that's going to be a very substantially sized company. By that stage, it's it's awesome. It's very exciting that that's if I'm not mistaken, it would be yeah. I mean, for or five hundred mil in revenue. Yeah, we've been doubling
1: now for four years in a row, and the plan is to keep doing that for a few more years, and then you end up at uh, in the big numbers. Yeah, that's that's true. But I let me explain why we believe that is what we did in the in the past ten years is is completely redesigning the way bikes are made because we believe that. All bikes that are there are currently way too many bikes on the market there are only uh, it 's a sh- short g- guess, but I think there are over ten thousand maybe even even twenty five thousand different models on the market. every country has its own local hero brands it 's a scattered market, and every brand has a whole range of hundreds of of models and we believe it's very inefficient, and if we would have companies that, that that focus a lot more, so they can focus on one product and turn that product into spend all their engineering capacity, all their their R&D capacity on one specific model, like Apple did with the uh, with the iPhone, just one phone, and now they have a little bit more, but. Back in the days, the first iPhone, they just had one iPhone for the entire globe. And that's so much more efficient. You can create so much better products with that. And that's our approach to spend all our, our efforts on one model and try to make that model big in order to create better electric bikes. So uh, better quality, more affordable, because we believe that's what the market needs in order to get more bikes on the roads of, of, of cities around the globe. So we created this company not to be this cool niche Amsterdam cycle brand, but we've created this brand to change the world and to get more people on bikes and to do so you have to grow big. So that's the plan. Yeah, let's see uh, how that works out. I We personally, uh, we love, for example, the Brompton model. Brompton as uh, a folding bike from the UK. They only produce one. Mo- they have some versions, but basically it's just one folding bike. But they sell it all over the globe, and therefore they became one of the best in folding bikes. And I personally like that, and I want move to become the best in smart electric
0: commuter bikes. I actually had this as a question for later on in the interview, but I just want to ask it now, which is like. It is that because bike hardware, like if you look at the bike hardware business, everybody is just traditionally at least, right? All of the bike manufacturers at the moment are, you know, it's a terrible business. It's really low margin. There's no, they all have kind of like these convoluted distribution setups in a lot of the places. There's a couple of big players, but as you say, there's 25,000 different versions that have come out. When you were looking at this market in terms of how we're going to develop Van Move, So you're obviously focused on doing one one product. That I get. I understand that's like a clear answer. What are the other things? You mentioned before as well, this idea of being able to go, okay, we've got 80% custom parts. We're building a custom, pretty much our entire supply chain is going to be ours. It's going to be, we're going to own it. It's not going to, nobody else can come along and just sort of make the same version of the bike that we do just by putting all that componentry together. How are you using those to build you a better business um, so that you don't fall into that trap of just being kind of this low margin commodity player in the market? So
1: um, it started with the idea 10 years ago with that we saw that there's a beautiful theory. called blue ocean and red ocean. Uh, the bicycle industry was a red ocean. It was every, everyone was fighting for margin, all following the same approach, buying all the parts from the shelf. There was not much more engineering left in the bike industry. Except of course for the mountain bikes and the, the road bikes, there's a lot of uh, a lot of engineering. But for commuter bikes, we're just a commodity 15 years ago and it was a very bad industry to be in. What we believe in is if you buy all this part from the shelf, you end up with all bikes practically are the same globally. And if you change that by designing all the parts on your own, you're able to create an an integrated product. I think we, we compare it a lot with the computer industry in the in the 80s. And when you bought a computer in the 80s, you didn't buy a computer, you, you bought an, a set of components. You bought that graphics display with that CD-ROM player with that motherboard and then some brand put a casing around it. So it was you bought it because of the of the specifications and then apple came and and, and put everything together in one Beautiful box, and at first hand, the people said, "I want to know what specs are in it, what what what's it about." And but Apple said, "No, we just created a computer for for everyone, and it just works." And with that computer, and and later the iPhone brought it to the masses. I think we're trying to do the same uh, with bikes. I think 95 of the com- commuters are not interested in what kind of gearings they have, or it, they just. Or Shimano, what, Dior. Or exactly. Or, uh, they just anything. want a, yeah. a bike uh, that works and that brings them to their destination every day. And I think the, the the focus of the bike industry was way too much on, on sports, on, on racing and on um, mountain biking. So it started with the lights. Actually, it was the first part when the pieces fell together. Everyone was buying uh, lights from the shelf and then put it on their their bicycle frame. We integrated them in the in the frame. It was a lot of work, but it looked much better and it worked much better. So then we continued and continued and uh, with all the other parts. So basically, we have three uh, principles when when we when we design. First of all, is that we're driven by technology, so it's always about innovation, trying to improve ourselves. So that's an important one. The second is uh, that always form follows function. We never try to design beautiful things. We try to design things that work. And we believe if, if products will start yeah, looking good automatically. And the third thing is integration. We try to integrate as much parts and as much technology inside the bicycle frame because it makes the bikes much more uh, robust. I mean, our bikes are made to be left outside on the streets. So if you integrate all this technology, with, uh, it started with the lights, but also the locks and now the, the batteries, everything. Yeah, it, uh, when it's integrated, it's much harder for, it, for thieves to, to pick it up or when the balls, bike falls over it, it, it doesn't damage. So those are the three things are so, sort of guiding lines when we work on the design of our, of our bikes. So it started with the lights 10 years ago and then we continued with more and more parts in our own house. So uh, chain guards, the, the traditional hardware parts, chain guards, mud guards, steering bar, frame, of course, that's, that's how it started. And then it slowly emerged to the electronics we designed our own motor, our own battery, our own PCB chipboards, uh, our own computers. And now the focus is shifting to the software part, designing our own smartphone apps, our own embedded software on the bi- bike, our own backend. Yeah, we believe if you if you do everything in your own house and you can control the entire process and really create a seamless experience between the hardware and the software of the, the product. And therefore, yeah, create the the best consumer experience there is and, and overcome the barriers that modern cyclists encounters. And that's how it all started.
0: So I love this. I mean, I think that the way you've got to in terms of, you know, you just add more and more intelligence to the bikes it definitely follows the theory that we've had. So yeah, I, I mean, I love, you know, as you said, you, you started off with a dumb bike, you've worked out how to make it more integrated, and now you're starting to add more intelligence to make that whole experience work well. We've talked to Jeff Russikow, who does boosted boosted boards and we've talked to a couple of other scooter manufacturers and the thing that they kind of are seeing is like overwhelmingly people who are buying their vehicles in the kind of the electric space using them as their primary vehicles. Like this is the people who end up buying these vehicles is like I'm going to be using this as my predominant form of getting around. I know from you that you guys are seeing the same thing. I'd love to have you talk to that. Like what are you, what are you seeing between the people who originally were buying your bikes and versus what, what's happening now that they when they start buying the electric versions of the Van Murphs?
1: Yeah, that's, so we do a lot of research on our customers. Of course, because we sell direct, that's the coolest thing about selling direct. You maintain a close relationship with your customers. So yeah, we learn a lot from them. Uh, also, of course, yeah, we get uh, a lot of data out of the bikes. So we learn a lot from that too. And from that data we learn uh, and, and from their feedback, we learn that everyone who, who buys an electric bar, it for 70 uh, to 80% of the people, it becomes their main way of transport. And it also, it switches, I think, for 50 to 60%. Uh, before they bought the electric bike, their main way of transport was a car. And after they bought it, it became the electric bike. And that's the greatest, the greatest data. It really helps to get people out of their cars. And that's what we're seeing too. So uh, also in Amsterdam, I think um, the perfect bike ride on a t- commute on a traditional bike is approximately four to six kilometer. But on e-bikes, that's, that's much bigger, so up to maybe 15, 20 kilometers. So e-bikes makes it, make, make it possible for a lot more people to commute to their work or to their university, whatever. And that's the big change that's happening now. It's funny because it started uh, 10 years ago with uh, with the elderly. So e-bikes came up in the Netherlands approximately 10 years ago, 15 years ago for older people uh, who didn't have the muscle power anymore to to ride bikes. So they start riding electric bikes. And then it started five years ago when when commuters started discovering uh, e-bikes. And now it's a shift from the elderly to, to commuters. I think it's the first... Global trend that started with the elderly and is now shifting
0: to to young people. Normally, it's the other way around. Normally, it is. I agree. Yeah. Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, and that's
1: the big revolution. We see, you see a global scale. You see an enormous increase in in sales of e-bikes, and I think that that increase will only rise and rise in the next uh, few years as more and more people.
0: Uh, discover discover e-bikes. I mean, the thing that I can see with the the strategy that you've taken has been to stay in the premium end of the, the market. And I'd love for you to talk me through I mean, so your bike is what, 3,000 euros for, so it's, you know, like in the region of three and a half, four thousand 4,000 US, right? I understand because you're going for the fully integrated product and stuff like that, but how do you think about yourself in the positioning in this market? And do you think that there will always be a demand for that? Or do you see that over time that there'll be a, your ability to be able to do efficiencies of scale will be, allow you to bring that right down?
1: Oh, for sure. That's the. Uh, I mean, the 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 goal of the company is to get the next billion people on bikes, and we would never get a billion people on bikes by selling three thousand dollar plus e-bikes. We do this. I mean, now we're selling bikes mainly to to early adapters. We can see that in our in our customers. They're open to new technology. Most of them have an uh, have a Tesla too, and uh, what we're doing now is creating scale, growing fast, and. It looks like we're, we're succeeding in that, but the only reason we do that is to get the prices down. So now we're becoming in a, a phase where we can redesign most of the parts for higher product volumes. So that's a process that's happening all the time. So if we scale further, we can bring the cost price down and we will for sure bring prices down in, in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If I may ask what's the sort of goal price that you think a reasonably priced good quality electric e-bike or an electric bike will be in say th- four or five years when everybody's manufacturing at scale right like do you have do you have understanding or thoughts around where the where the price points are going to get to because at the moment they're still kind of expensive
1: It's hard to predict, but I hope. The market will be already much, much bigger if we are able to create fan moves for, uh, let's say, um, just below €2,000. It's definitely going to be a little bit more, a little bit less advanced model as we're selling now. But all the basic technology, so the, the connectivity, the range, the kick lock, everything will be in it. We will have to to change some things and then it should be possible to get it as low as let's say around 2000, maybe just below, maybe 2200, somewhere in that area to tap into a real big market. That would be perfect to get them around uh, 1500. But that's, yeah, a a long, a big hairy goal for, let's say, uh, five to 10 years. And in order to do so, we have a, we have to reach the scale of a production of
0: one million bikes per year. Right. Well, so I wanted to talk to you about that. How are you going to get to that? Because one of the things that you brought up in your talk in Berlin, which I loved and think is, is conceptually really fascinating, is that you were saying, actually, look, our business model until now has been to build bikes and sell them. And we're shifting our business model away from being just selling the bikes to saying, you are going to think of this as your vehicle in the same way that like you go out and buy a car, you get a service plan, you get everything and like, you talked uh, about the subscription model and the the opening of the subscription model and how that how you've designed your bike right from the get-go to actually be built for subscription. I'd love for you to talk through how you see that business model changing how you're thinking about bikes? So, you you know, yes, there's the purchase price of maybe $1,500 if you can get or 1,500 euros if you can get to it. But do you think that most people, by the time you get to that point, won't actually be consuming a bike like that? They'll be consuming it as a a subscription service? And what's the growth in the business being look like for the subscription side of the business?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, a good point you're raising because it could well be that in five to ten years uh, people are not buying bikes anymore but are subscribing to a bike. I think that this this counts for a lot of consu- durable consumer products, by the way. I mean, for me, the, f- the the traditional model is what we had in the past with uh, global uh, manufacturers selling bikes to uh, distributors in the countries or, or, or products to distributes in the countries and then uh, those were, were selling to a small mom and pop stores in cities around the globe and then it's shifted via the internet it shifted to online sales bigger chains everything became bigger i believe the next step of that is is subscriptions or somehow some way of charging uh, money on a monthly basis. Because of the internet you're already uh, able as a as a manufacturer to have a direct relationship uh, with lots of people online. So why not ask for a monthly fee instead of a one-off selling price? I love that model because it incentivizes manufacturers to create better products, to uh, create products that last longer because it's an incentive for Producers, yeah, not to make stuff, sell it, and then that it doesn't matter anymore what happens with it. So it, it, I think it improves quality. So I love the model. That being said, we've been exploring uh, it for now, and we've actually actually just taken the decision to offer the subscriptions directly to consumers for the uh, e-bikes. Not just yet. We've learned a lot from the past year. We've been offering uh, subscriptions on our non-electric bikes. Learned a lot, and also see that it's when you offer subscriptions, uh, you have to deliver the entire package, and that's really hard to do it on a on a global level. And we believe we're not ready for it yet. So we believe in this model, but we won't will not. Offer it on the short term uh, to consumers directly. We do offer it to businesses, then it's a little bit more condensed. So we have companies, uh, big companies that uh, subscribe to a uh, fleet of, of bicycles and giving their employees access to these these bikes. We do not believe it too much in, in sharing for this. We do believe that for commuters, it makes more sense to own or subscribe to your own bike for visitors and and tourists sharing makes a lot of sense but for commuting we more believe in one bike per uh, per person.
0: I hear you and for the subscription model that you do run at the moment for the because you run it for the standard bike right you don't run it for the electric but you run it for the standard bike. Exactly. What's the details of that and then what's been the adoption of that of the say for example as a percentage of sales how many people end up using that Versus just buying it outright from you.
1: Yeah, that's the biggest issue. It's too popular. So over 60% of our um, standard bikes are now sold via subscriptions compared to 40% sales. So as the electric bikes for us as a company are almost 95% of our revenue, subscriptions would would be instantly too big. So we're still working on it to make it really optimize the product offering before we launch it. And that's not easy. If you, uh, yeah, people are expecting a lot of uh, of subscriptions and they should. And so it's hard to deliver that on a
0: global level. I hear you. And is it a higher margin product for you because you're able to retain the customer for longer? I mean, in some ways, right, you lock a customer in a little bit more if you've got them on a subscription because... You know, well, they've got the bike, obviously, but then they've got the service and they don't have, you know, they don't have to think about it in any ways. It's why the car business has had built out and gone and done dealerships.
1: Yeah, it probably is a little bit higher margin. We don't look at it like that. The only mission of our company is to, at the moment, is to scale it, to become bigger in order to be able to optimize the product further and and get the prices down. So we only look at how we can get as many bikes on the road. And if margins for that a little bit lower or higher that's not the big deal so we did look into the financials of course of, of the subscriptions and some in some market it's a little bit higher it depends a little bit on on uh, how much bikes are
0: stolen because insurance is in, uh, integrated how much the bikes and you also have to pay your bike hunters which i would love to i would love to have you talk to as well because a lot of people don't know those stories <laughs> Yeah, we'll come back
1: to that later. The, the bike hunters are awesome. But uh, it depends a little bit per market. I think in, in, in Amsterdam, uh, it's an easy market and uh, uh, subscriptions are margins are a little bit better. I think in, in the American market, for example, it's, it's a bit tougher. But it's about the same
0: yeah interesting and then so talk me through what the subscription is i mean you end up with the service but you also end up with insurance you end up with the bike hunters talk me through the bike hunters and like that's one of the things anytime i venture, i mention van mouth to people it's like Oh, those guys have got the guys that'll go chase people down in Morocco for you to find your bike. Yeah. I was like, I have no, I didn't even know about this thing. I just, uh, I, but, but everybody seemed to think it was this very marvelous aspect of the Van Melf uh, ecosystem. So talk us through it. How did, how did that come to be? Yeah, this summer
1: I had a a crazy cool uh, experience. I was sitting on a, having a beer on a, on a terrace in, uh, in Amsterdam and there were three American guys sitting next to me and they were bragging and and telling about, uh, 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 talking for over an hour about the bike hunters right next to me and I enjoyed it so much. I didn't tell and feel the secret that I was actually a bike hunter (laughs) But it was awesome to hear the story from, uh, from others. It's sometimes it's like uh, the movie, um, how is it called? Uh, the Usual Suspects, your bike hunters are yeah. everywhere, but you don't know uh, where they are, they, they can be everywhere. So we have a couple of, of tracking systems inside uh, the bike. So when the, the bike is stolen, which is not happening that often anymore because we have the alarm systems now, we have the integrated kick lock. So the biggest problem of the Bike Hunters is that we don't have enough stolen bikes anymore, but when bikes are stolen, you uh, users can report their bike stolen via their uh, smartphone app, and then it activates all the tracking systems, and it activates a global team of Bike Hunters that uh, retrieve stolen bikes. So they have two weeks to find your bike back, and if they can't find it back, you'll get a new bike if you have the, the peace of mind guarantee. They were, they were hunting uh, yesterday in, uh, in in New York, um, today in, in Amsterdam, so they're active uh, around the globe and in all markets that we operate in, so in our 20 markets. Uh, but sometimes they go further, so we had some bikes... Uh, one year ago, a little bit longer ago, uh, there were three bikes stolen in one week in Paris and they all went directly from Paris to Molenbeek in Brussels to Casablanca in Morocco. So we uh, mm-hmm. followed the trace, went to Molenbeek, went to, uh, to Casablanca, eventually fo- found a, a warehouse filled up with uh, stolen European bikes. Yeah, that was... a. It was a, it was a great trip. So we, most of the time, we film the activities of the uh, the bike hunters. We film the actual hunts, and it's it's great content to watch. If every month there's a monthly bike hunter update on the on the YouTube channel, and you can see what bikes we retrieved that month and uh, and how we did it. It's a big topic for us. I mean, in some way, it's just fun. It's just cool to see how we do this, I, I, I believe, and how we retrieve bikes. But it's also more than that. It's it's a big topic. I mean, bike theft is, for a lot of people, the number one reason they are afraid to buy a, a good quality bike. And, and they end up buying crap from, from uh, Home Depot stores. And that's one of the worst things that can happen. The worst thing is that, let's say, someone in New York has made the decision to start commuting on a bike now and then, and that he goes to, let's say Walmart and buys an, a, a bike for uh, less than $100. And what will happen is within three months the bike will break. So it's, it's, it's an environmental waste of materials, uh, but the biggest waste is that guy probably won't cycle anymore and, and will go back to his bike. So how can we convince people to invest in a proper bike of good quality. And I believe that's much easier if we solve the big bike theft issue. A lot of people are afraid of bike theft and that's why we have the Bike Hunters to retrieve bikes, but also to address the issue of, of bike theft, and that's why we go to on trips to Morocco or, or Ukraine. Uh, we would love to go to South America anytime soon. <laughs> we we
0: uh, yeah. had yeah, someone needs to go and steal one and
1: uh, some bikes riding around there. If if you have listeners from uh, from South America, please call us. We we have some some great spots. yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why we do that too to address the issue. It's not there. We don't go there. To, to retrieve that single bike. We, we, we like to draw attention for bike theft and to uh, help addressing this issue uh, so that police around the globe takes it starts taking this topic seriously. And also, uh, even more important, to have people take it serious because the big problem with bike theft is that there's a market for stolen bikes. And if people would... Yeah, be more conscious when they buy a, a bike that is obviously stolen or are trapped into the purchase of a, of a stolen bike. Uh, yeah, we like to, to uh, address that issue so people won't buy stolen bikes anymore so we can solve this issue for good.
0: Yeah, I really love it. I think it's a very smart marketing exercise and, you know, I applaud it for sure. If I was to take a couple of steps back for for you, when you look around, who do you consider your competition for when you're looking in terms of high-end micromobility, but also when you're thinking for a customer who's thinking about buying your bike, who do you think that you're competing against? When they're making that decision,
1: yeah. So uh, we see uh, the car in, uh, industry as our main competition. So competition would be BMW, Mercedes, maybe
0: Tesla. I found it interesting that you said before that most of your most of your guys own Teslas. So yeah, yeah. The funny thing to me, right, is that someone's willing to go spend, even if they spent not that much money on a car, even if they spent ten or twelve grand on a car right and it's not like they're not those I mean the, the cars that you're talking about they're really nice cars that's a 50,000 or 100,000 euro car but that's also still the demographic of the people who, who you are looking to in terms of buying the vehicle because it strikes me as being well if you've got a 4,000 euro bike and it's good it's kind of replaces the primary vehicle it ends up replacing a lot of the things you should be in theory in competition with any car right not just the nice high-end ones
1: but, uh, yeah that's true of course it's a uh... At the moment, we're selling more bikes to the premium segment, so early adapters. So most of them end up having a little bit more expensive cars, uh, so that's why I'm saying that. But it's the car we're competing against. Also a little bit about uh, against public transport, of course. I mean, in cities like London, uh, New York, it, our customers have to choose every day between taking the, uh, the subway or a bike. But that's just on one hand, because on the other on, on the other hand, that's also are you could also consider that business partners. I think I don't believe people will only have bikes in the future. I think it's always a a combination between an uh, hopefully electric car and a bike. And you do bike for you use your bike for urban commuter, um, and you lo- use your car for city to city transport. So on one hand, it's competition. On the other
0: hand, it's also an addition. No, no, I hear you. I mean, we're seeing that certainly in the data, which is like most of these purchases that we're seeing, at least now, are all additive. You know, people are buying this and they're buying it in addition to all their cars, etc. And then they're just finding, oh, it's actually this is a better solution. So I'll get rid of the second car or, you know, whatever else in, in in a household.
1: And it's also with uh, with public uh, transport, of course. There's a lot of commutes and that that could combine it, like a, a short biking distance in combination with uh, with a train. So that's probably how the landscape will uh, will look like in, in in ten to twenty years. More combination of trips, maybe even self driving cars in combination with with bikes, uh, cars that bring you to the city, and then bikes that that move you around within the city. I think you're also referring to competition inside the bicycle industry and then I always love the brands that that, that focus that focus on one product and turn all their energy into that product. I think I th- I believe those brands will win in the future. So we will have maybe three global brands on every single product. So three global brands in racing bikes, three global brands in folding bikes, cargo bikes, and also three, or it could be five, could be two on smart electric commuter bikes. And I think that's the playing field of
0: the future. So I, I admire companies that focus. So that's. So it's, who is that for you guys? Who's, I mean, you're obviously one of them. So who are the other two?
1: I also mentioned uh, the example of, of Brompton, completely focusing on, on folding bikes. Uh, GoCycle is a good example of that too, uh, a folding electric bike from the UK.
0: It's a brand I love. Cool. So I'm aware we're just wrapping up, but I wanted to just ask, as we've been talking through and I've been interviewing a lot of people in the industry, is there's a lot of people who can see kind of your point, right? Which is there are going to be a couple of bigger players that are going to emerge. There's going to be substantial hardware players who provide with custom supply chains and they're going to be involved and they're going to be making these vehicles and they'll have network effects to them because they'll be able to, you know, there will be uh, bike hunters, etc., cetera, bike hunting networks and services, et cetera, that will emerge around these vehicles. And yet, when you go and talk to venture capitalists, they struggled to see the sort of like, oh, I'm not going to get 100x return out of this investment. And so how have you found raising capital? Because you guys obviously went out and raised a bunch with the crowdfunding, uh, which went exceedingly well. But I'm really curious about where you see the, the next kind of input of capital was going to come from.
1: Yeah, so I believe in a hybrid model. And hi- with hybrid, I mean uh, both relying on, on, on venture debt, crowdfunding, and on venture capital, I think if you're building a software company now, you could easily rely on venture capital alone. There's so so much money flowing into software right now that I wouldn't bother trying to get venture debt or crowdfunding if I have a if I would have a software company. Uh, so for hardware, it's a little bit tougher on on one hand. On the other hand, it's easier because we have this great. A direct relationship with our customers, so therefore uh, crowdfunding was for us a an easy and logical step. So what we did is we did two campaigns and one the biggest one was last year, and we offered uh, convertible loans to our customers so that they provide loans to us, and those loans will convert into equity in the next funding round. And that was a big success. Yeah, we sent an, an email out to all our customers if they were willing to invest, and it was filled up in I think four hours even before the official uh, launch of the crowdfunding platform we're working w- uh, with. So that was great. And we also have a this summer we had a yeah we acquired a, a new bank loan with the Dutch bank. We was happy to assist our in our growth. So now. We've done both that. I think the next most logical step would be to do another VC funding round. So we slowly start to prepare that probably next year.
0: Yes. And so who are the sort of VCs that you think would find you interesting? Have you found any uh, early, early bites? We have some venture capitalists who listen to this episode. So uh, this uh, to the...
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it comes from all different sides because we're, we're in the crossover between three fields so it's first of all it's the clean tech funds investing in uh, with a more sustainable perspective than traditional funds who like the idea of yeah getting more bikes into cities so that's the first type of funds and we have the funds that's more focused on on direct to consumer brands so have more experience in the branding side and then we have the traditional tech funds who like us because of our combination of, yeah, of, the, of the software on wheels. As we are heading more and more to the software part. So we see a lot of interest from, from all uh, those three sites. Yeah, of course, it's a little bit harder. We have a, the, the business case a little bit less easy with software, but uh, we still have uh, lots and lots of VCs calling uh, so I don't see that issue to be that big. And I, I do think there's still enough access to VC capital for hardware companies.
0: Cool. All right. No, good to know. Brilliant. Well, look, I, I just want to say thank you so much for making the time. It's brilliant to, to have a chance to connect with you. Just for context as well, if anybody wants to see the presentation that Taco did, it is now up online, the one that you did in Berlin, uh, your Petra Kucha, uh, which is great. And just explains a bit more about Van Moof and I'll include that in the show notes as well. Taco, I just want to say thank you so much. And it's, it's I am really excited for you guys. I mean, I've been when I first saw your back in like 2012, I think was when I first discovered the Van Moof. And I just thought, that is a good looking bike. Like the guys who make that are just they know what they're doing. It's been such an interesting thing to be able to like follow your story and then obviously be able to end up doing this uh and to be able to uh, bring you on the podcast and, and talk to you about what you're up to. So keep it up. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if anybody wants to find out more about you, are you on Twitter yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I'm a Twitter at Taco Callier. But I think the most interesting uh, stuff is when you follow Move on YouTube, you see the Bike Hunter content or on, on Twitter. That's where the, uh, the real interesting stuff uh, comes from, not from my personal account.
0: Okay, you yeah, know, touche, touche. There's actually one of the, the things I loved out of your all of your content strategy was there's a guy who bought one of your electric bikes in New York. And he was like, dude, I didn't even go to like, I didn't go to buy a bike. I was actually going to buy a car. And then I found, I found the bike on the roof of the car in the showroom and was like i like the bike can i just buy the bike yes yeah, that was awesome real- and now he rides
1: it on a daily basis he spends less time commuting he's much more uh healthy and uh yeah it's an awesome story we also have a, a guy working in the store in new york who had a terrible commute i think one and a half hour on the on the subway and now he he, he switched to uh to the e-bike i think two years ago i don't know and 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 he, he looks like a complete different man so he's he's much more healthy and um yeah much more positive yeah it's great
0: excellent all right well thank you so much taco and yeah we'll look forward to having you come and join us again at another Micro Mobility conference or on the podcast at some later stage when we've got some exciting news from you
1: I would love to. I, I loved the, the conference in Berlin. It was a, a unique event where people from all over the world came together. And it was so, the cool thing about it, it was all, all these uh, companies were competitors, they were competing against each other, but it wasn't that, like that. It was just a, a group of people together, all came to the realization that it just doesn't make sense anymore to, to stand in, in traffic, in a car the whole day in those cities and to to live in this, in this polluted air. If people would realize how bad the air quality still is in cities and, and, and what an effect it has on their life, they would work hard, much harder to make the change happen. And that's what all the, those people there had in common. And that's why I liked it so much. It was a great event, great spirit.
0: Uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, really, really appreciate it. It was fun. It was great to have you on board. Cool. All right. Well, thanks very much, Taco. Cheers. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.